welcome back to the State of Play podcast, episode 37. I'm back in the hosting seat this time as Martino is taking a very welcome break. He's been hard at work this whole time during the COVID situation. I'm joined as always by my co-host and uh, partner in crime, Matt Santangelo over in the States. How are you doing, mate? I'm doing pretty well. Happy Friday, everyone. This is the time of recording. It's a Friday, so it doesn't. I don't even know how to distinguish between a Monday, a Wednesday, and a no Friday. There are no days now, anymore, but, man. There are no yeah, days. Yeah, but anymore. Uh, I, yeah, we have a lot, a lot to talk about. Of course, thank you to everyone who has listened to our quarantine episodes. I know Martino has been keeping everyone up to date on how many we have. I think this is the sixth, if I'm correct. Some great guests, so make sure you guys check out our earlier catalog. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to be back, and of course, excited to have a very special guest. Pat, you want to introduce him? Yeah, we've got Harry Brooks. Harry, I think you, you do so much that it might be better for you to introduce yourself and what you do rather than me butcher it. So go ahead. <laughs> no, thanks for having me on, guys. Really looking forward to it. So predominantly, I am a football coach. I work with young professionals and academy players in the UK and elsewhere in Europe. And my full-time job really is actually a coach and analyst for an independent academy that's based in the UK called Round World Academy. So we look to basically bridge the gap between grassroots football and professional football. So we push generally around six to eight players a year into professional clubs to get signed. We regularly play fixtures against professional academies in one-off games and tournament invites home and abroad. So over the last few years, we've played the likes of Bayern Munich, Liverpool, Man United, Schalke, Elche, and many, many more across different age groups. And then, so that's generally for the players that are looking to, to push into the world of professional football. But then myself and director of Round World, Richard Webster, we also have a project going where we work hand in hand, and that is called the Royals. And that's where we work with players who are already in the system. And we're basically looking to give them that extra edge to give them the best possible chance of having a professional career. So, you know, we work with players at Tottenham, Arsenal, Man City, and clubs in players from clubs in Germany, Holland specifically, those those three countries, you know, England, Holland and Germany, the main ones we sort of focus in and work in predominantly. But we do work elsewhere as well. And about a million projects aside from that, but that's basically the crux of it, yeah. And you've recently started your own podcast, haven't you? I have indeed, yeah. So, um, you know, and I, a few people are quite interested in hearing maybe some of the stuff we get up to in a bit more detail. I know that obviously on the outside you can you know, want to sort of be aware of what's going on in the world of football in a bit more detail. So we thought doing our own podcast would be a, uh, a good platform to put that out there. Awesome. Awesome. And I, I presume that's been going really well and you've been able to get into the, the nitty uh, gritties of, of coaching and football. Yeah, fantastic. The first episode was with a fantastic guest called Sam Cox, who is a, he's got a really interesting story. He's an academy coach at Tottenham Hotspur. He was a young pro at the club. He never made his debut for the club. But he was in the same age group as the likes of Harry Kane. Um, but he's now an academy coach, but he's still playing himself. He's actually a, an international captain. He, he plays for Guyana. He was the captain when Guyana qualified for the Gold Cup for the first ever time a couple of years ago. So no, and Sam's a fantastic person, a really good guy. So no, he was a great first guest. And yeah, the second episode was out yesterday, talking about the, the current sarks in football and maybe why there's not as many mavericks and magicians about nowadays. So no, mm. it's, it's been a good start. I'm enjoying it. 
Awesome, awesome. I just wanted to touch on the the, the little uh, bit that you talked about there in terms of bridging the gap between um, grassroots and kind of professional level mm. of the, the sport. Because, I mean, in my own experience, I played at kind of a semi-professional level in the, the EJA leagues when I was younger. And yeah. I think when you're kind of like a good player and you're kind of maybe the best in your school or whatever, and then um, you kind of make that step up into what isn't even a professional league, you realise that everyone's kind of just as good as you. But that gap between you know that semi-pro level and the professional game is is so so great and it seems to be that that level is you know so much greater and the disparity between those two levels is is quite bigger in the UK than it is in most other countries and what why do you think that is why is there kind of an issue with uh grassroots uh quality of football and coaching and I suppose surfaces etc the main thing that I've noticed is the education a lot of the time from the coaches um, that's not to say that you know there aren't fantastic coaches outside of academies. There are plenty fantastic coaches outside of professional academies, and there are plenty coaches in professional academies that I'm not too sure of. <laughs> but you know, it, it, for me, the biggest difference actually is that I think what a lot of people don't realise actually is I think the the lines are often quite fine, but with academy players and with that kind of setup is they've just got more of the little percentages that all add up. And mm. the biggest difference for me I've noticed generally across the board is if you're a player that's looking to push into the environment, a lot of it is down to their mentality. And, you know, when I was growing up, my dream was to become a professional footballer. It never happened. You know, I wasn't quite good enough. But whenever I used to hear footballer interviews and they would always give the same advice, it would be always work hard, never give up. And I always used to think, well, you know, is there not more to it? Can you not give me more than that? Is there not like some magic magic piece of advice that you can give but when you're working with these people and these professionals and the people that are in the setup you actually realize that no it, it can be not simple but it can be that that simple yeah and it's your mentality in terms of how you approach every single session how you approach your general life you know it's all well and good saying you work hard but do you really work hard do you really dedicate yourself to achieving your dream because Becoming a professional footballer is it's a phenomenal achievement. It's, it's extraordinary and it therefore requires a, an extraordinary amount of work and focus and dedication. And that's the biggest issue for me. I think a lot of people on the outside that are looking to push into the environments don't quite realise and don't quite appreciate how much dedication they've got to put towards their craft and got to put towards the game. They've got to do everything correctly. And it's, it's an incredibly difficult thing to always turn up to every training session with the right mindset every single game with the right mindset and making sure that, you know, you don't take weeks off and times off. And that's the biggest difference for me, I think, that from maybe people on the outside looking in. Um, but, you know, often I think a lot of people think that if you play for Arsenal and Man City and Liverpool, Tottenham, Chelsea, etc., as a as a 15-year-old, then you are some incredible footballer. And, of course, you're very good to be playing at that level, but you do often find that the lines are very, very fine. I remember I was coaching a player for Arsenal in, in the summer and he had a very good friend the same age that had recently been released from a, a, a non-league club. And there really wasn't that much difference in terms of quality between the two. But one of them's playing for Arsenal Academy and the other's just been released from a non-league academy. Mm. But it was just such fine lines. And that Arsenal player just had a few more of those little 1% and they all add up. So, yeah, it's not, I don't think it's a massive chasm but it's just, you know, the mentality and they just have a few more of those little 1% that all add up. 
Matt, I know you're you're a, a big advocate of kind of the the mental side of the game that that Harry mentioned there. I'm wondering if you kind of see similarities across the pond in in the US and also in Syria, which you're very fond of, in terms of seeing uh, some of those young players just kind of fall off the radar due to not uh, working too hard. Uh, I, I don't know if you want to give any insight into into that side of things. Yeah, I, I think, you know, as someone who's really focused on Serie A, you know, Italian calcio, and obviously I have my taste of um, Polish football, um, you know, Sicilian and Polish, but also I live in America, right? So I kind of have a little bit of a different, you know, degrees of uh, football excellence or different degree, different levels of, right? You know, MLS is on a different level than the Polish extra class uh, is on a different level than Serie A, right? But I, I, I always think of the quote, that was from uh, Andrea Pirlo's autobiography. I don't know if you guys listened, uh, have read it. Um, it's fantastic. But um, uh, football is played with the head. Your feet are just tools. So, you know, Harry, everything you're talking about, you know, you can have the skills, you can have the ability. But it, a lot of these players that you've probably come across or you probably see varying players who may be on that same level of, of their technical abilities and all those sorts of things. But mm-hmm. the way they are maybe a, a pass or two ahead, the way they see things differently than the other players is one thing that's going to stand out. And I think it's, it's a lot of it's the mental, the, the mental side of things, which I think a lot of people tend to um, overlook in a, in, a, in, a, in a crowded area for players, right? I think it's easy for us to kind of get enamored and fall in love with, you know, a great dribble or, you know, a three-second gif or anything like that of a player. But it's something when you watch a player and there's, there's the eye test of like, well, how is he reading this pass? How is he observing the game from his own position versus how other players do it? And I think ultimately, whether it be football, whether it be different sports, I think that's ultimately what sets certain people uh, aside from others and, and how people grow and, and you know, climb up the ladders. I always found it really fascinating um, is that sort of element because I think there's a lot of players who growing up and I even as playing, you know, multiple different sports uh, as, as a youth, you know, there were a lot of players who were, they had the ability, but they never just applied themselves as, as much as other players. And then that ultimately was the difference between them staying kind of on a plateau, uh, Pet, as you alluded to, a lot of players are as good as them, but it's looking around and saying, okay, I got more work to do. What else can I do to get to the next step? Studying, you know, putting in those extra hours. Again, the mental side, I think a lot of people tend to, um, you know, at least on, on football Twitter, I know it's a very chaotic and, you know, social media is a huge, has a huge uh, place in football today and how players are judged, rated, and all how our transfers occur. But I just think that if someone can, you know, you know read uh, more on the mental side, I think there's plenty of, of, of uh, literature out there. But, you know, from what I see in you know, MLS, if we're talking about how I've experienced it here in the States, when I watched Andrea Pirlo at NYCFC live from the press box, and I think, again, it's always great to watch the games live versus on TV um, because the camera angles, everything kind of gets adjusted and you miss certain parts that really are important to the game and how it flows. But looking at what Pirlo was doing at 36, 37 years old, he was way ahead of everyone and the players were just not picking out his passes, making the runs to meet those passes. So it is the mental game. And I think in in many ways it's footballers themselves. You have 11 guys on the field, but it's all about a puzzle, right? It's all about choreography and all that. It seems how everything syncs up and how everything kind of flows naturally. If you have one piece that is just ahead of everybody, then those, you know, forward players or those wingers are mainly not, you know, you know, recognize the runs they need to make to pick out those balls and to make those passing lanes uh, occur. 
So, you know, I just, I always found that part of the of football very fascinating, especially as I've grown older to appreciate those elements versus just, you know, the good dribble and, the, you know, the, the rainbow, the, the flicks that really don't amount to anything in the end. They're just sexy to look at for a couple seconds, but they really kind of stop the play and, you know, they really don't lead to what they're supposed to lead to. So that's what I've always found very interesting on my end, but I'm sure Harry in your travels, you've kind of even dug even deeper than that. Yeah, I think that for me, game understanding and game intelligence will always be the most important attribute for any footballer and any player. But there's so many facets to game intelligence. And I think, you know, you're talking about Andre Perlo there. I actually think it's, I think football's actually, we spoke about on my podcast yesterday, um, in the current cycle of football, I think it's, it's now sort of changing in the sense of what is required from a footballer. And I think that this current cycle is, it's actually so much about intensity and athleticism and, mm. and running power and, you know, those players that put their foot on the ball and control the tempo and slow the game down, they're, they're becoming less of a factor in today's game because it is just so fast and so intense and so so much of what you do is how you how you play off the ball in terms of your running ability. and and But for me, game intelligence will always be the most important thing because it has, you know, and there's so many facets to it. It can be do you read where the play is going to, to cover a certain passing lane and to, to cut out in it and to make an interception? You know, on the ball, do you see the pass, as you said? Or off the ball, are you making a good run behind the back line, as, as Aaron Ramsey has made a career built on, you know, for, for Arsenal and now Juventus? So there's many different assets to, to game intelligence. It's not just one broad thing. And I think that, you know, as you, as you said, I think game intelligence will always be the most important factor to, you know, the ability of a player. But I think in terms of the players like Andre, Andre Perlo, you know, they're becoming less of a less of an influence on today's game. And I think that's a bit of a shame, but, you know, that's just the way the football, that's the way it goes. That's the current cycle we're in right now. Yeah, I think it's something that a lot of people attributed to kind of Klopp's Gagan press and, and, and all, all yeah. that. But in fact, you know, uh, some of Pep Guardiola's signings at Man City, if you look at uh, Carl Walker, Benjamin Mendy, uh, you know, even Bernardo Silva, I know he's he's not physically the, the biggest or the strongest, but he's always up there in terms of the uh, running stats. He kind of foresaw that and, and didn't really try and recreate a team like he did at Barcelona at all, or even... Uh, Bayern Munich, um, which was probably slightly more uh, technically apt than the one that he has at City, even he saw that the game was kind of pushing towards that way. And you do have to have those uh, players that are like physically apt, you know, even going from the keeper in Edison, you know, you've got someone who's probably one of the most athletic keepers that I've ever seen. You know, uh, Gary Neville always praises his uh, ability to get off his line really quickly, his kind of power and athleticism to get off that. He rarely loses out in a battle to to claim a ball in the air, etc. So it's, it's it's transcended like throughout the whole of the pitch hasn't it I think so yeah and I think that the game is becoming a lot more vertical so you know if you look at the previous cycle it was arguably dominated by or predominated the best sides by you know very possession heavy um, I don't like using the phrase tiki taka because I think it's, uh, it's a phrase that counts for pointless passing and, I, and Pep Guardiola has certainly never been an, <laughs> an advocate of pointless passing but it was very possession dominant and then you know, from maybe around 2008 to 2012, I would say, that was, you know, the, the, the dominant sides with that, like that, Barcelona and Spain. But then I remember it was in 2013, Bayern Munich played Barcelona over two legs and they batted them mm. 7-0. And it was just through getting the ball forward much more quickly, the running power, just swarming Barcelona with the intensity and the athleticism. And 
that's just the way football's gone on since then. So you have had to adjust. And I think that I think the football is now very robotic. It's very much about certain plays and circuits and role fillers and players have to know what to do and when to do it at certain points. There's really not much in the way of, you know, creative expression from individuals outside of the, the tactical structure of their side. And that's just the way the football is nowadays. You look at, you know, the best team in the world, I think, I don't think anyone would argue that Liverpool are the best team in the world. And if you look at their midfield, there's not really one creative genius there. Maybe Naby Keita is a very, very good player, but he hasn't really been a, a staple point in the side because of injuries. But, you know, if you look at the three that have maybe dominated the tri- the, their midfield in Fabinho, Henderson and Alden, none of them are particularly creative or particularly flair players. They don't do things that amaze you, but they're very functional. They're very athletic, very disciplined, and they perform roles. And that's the way football's going right now. And I think that it is leading to a reduction in a player that can put their foot on the ball, slow the game down, because that's not what the game is. It's only getting quicker and more intense. And yeah, and I think it's a lot of it has been, you know, come from maybe Klopp and the German style, um, the Gagan pressing, the counter pressing, obviously. So it is interesting whether it's was you know whether that's how you view football. We all view football differently. I personally love, you know, I, I grew up and loved watching people like Ronaldinho and you know those Mavericks that can do things and surprise and create out of nothing. But there's less of a place for them nowadays, and I think the creativity is now being centered towards more specific ways. So you know, if you look at a creative player nowadays, if you go back to Liverpool and Roberto Firmino, he's very creative, but he's only creative within the structure of the team he's only allowed to be creative doing certain things you know when he drops the link midfield and attack he can do the tricks and flicks but that's only because the system allows him to do that he certainly can't be creative and express himself outside the typical tactical regiment like a like a Zidane might have done or Ronaldinho might mm. have done so that's just the way football's gone and that's the way it currently is I can't really see it changing anytime soon but it's interesting to talk about nonetheless and it, <laughs> it, it you know I mean, we'll stick on to the Premier League, actually, Harry, because uh, you, of course, are a, a massive Tottenham fan. And uh, yep. myself being an Arsenal fan, this might be an interesting conversation. And it might be made even more interesting by Matt's, I guess, distaste for Jose Mourinho. Uh, okay. <laughs> but uh, how do you think he's fared so far? I mean, there's been a lot of uh, criticism, some just, some, I guess, unjust. What has been your assessment? I honestly think, you know, what, what was he supposed to do? Um, when he came into the team, it was, a, it was a side that was very imbalanced, a squad that's very imbalanced, sorry, and had reached the end of a cycle probably two years earlier. You know, the, the, the squad had barely changed and they were just, they were very fatigued mentally and physically, the Tottenham players. And he came into pretty much of a, a, a broken squad and very quickly he did get results and did perform well. And the football was, entertaining it was different as well you know it wasn't you know just how people view Mourinho but it's incredibly difficult to build a team and to have a philosophy and to build a set way of playing with your ideas if huge components of that side constantly are getting injured and then one of them's and not just normal injuries long-term injuries I mean Harry Kane and Hyun-Min Son you know Tottenham's two strikers I know Son isn't really a, a, a typical striker but he has played there quite a bit you know, both have had long-term injuries at the same time. And I just think it just got to a stage where it was literally trying to, you know, cover cracks with plasters. And mm. I don't really know what he could have done. I think that 
I think they, where there's so much access nowadays for the general fan to, you know, voice their opinion, access to analysis pieces and data, there's nothing wrong with that. But to me, I think it's led to a situation where unless you are deemed a philosophical manager that is very strict in your ideas and way of playing and you coach certain set plans and set patterns of play, circuits like, you know, Guardiola has been doing at City, Maurizio Sarri at Chelsea, even Arteta now at Arsenal. Unless you are viewed as one of those philosophical managers, then you're almost seen as outdated, which I don't Mm. agree with, you know. Just because Mourinho perhaps doesn't have as many set patterns of play as, say, Guardiola or Sarri at at Chelsea and now Juventus, it doesn't mean that he's just asking his attacking players to go out there and, you know, just be free, do what you want. Um, I think if you think that of Mourinho, then you don't really understand the success he's had. He's, He's a fantastic coach. The thing that I think maybe is a question mark over Mourinho is has he adapted to the modern day player in terms of mentality? And, you know, it, the, when he was very successful, the, the, the mentalities of players was very, very different to what it is nowadays. It's, they're very well protected nowadays players and I don't know if Mourinho can accept that. Um, but in terms of him as a coach, I don't think he is that doubted at all. And he was given a very, very tough hand to deal with. And I don't think anybody can fairly critique him until at least... Well, I would say uh, this transfer window, but who knows what's going to happen now with the coronavirus. But, <laughs> we will you know, get to that. We'll, that. we'll get to that yeah, in a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't, think, I don't think anybody can fairly critique him at the moment, um, mm. to be honest. Matt, uh, can you critique him, critique him at the moment? Well, I think, you know, here's, here's my view of everything, right? I think with, again, it's every, everything is under a, a much uh, closer microscope, right? When we watch and analyze footballers. And I know one of the questions that... Um, you know, one of our uh, our listeners you sent in kind of kind of touches on this, and we'll, we'll get to that sooner uh, sooner than rather than later. But um, the way I look at everything again, you mentioned Sari, you mentioned uh, all these different coaches, right? Even Klopp, and I think the more intricate, more detailed the the, the philosophies that these managers try to carry out and implement, um, Harry and Pitt, I think they they it's clear that a lot of them take time. I think the, the, the issue I have or that I see with a lot of expectations is they're not very fair expectations and what I mean by that is you look at what Sarri was able to build at Napoli right when they were four points off a title and dethroning um uh, arguably if not the best Juventus dynasty they've ever had right well that wasn't an overnight case when they brought him in he came over from Empoli a team I think finished 14th or 15th had some, some nice players and then they made him the coach at Napoli and that took three to four years to essentially build that, that well-oiled machine, that style, that, that sorry ball style that everyone kind of came to know and love, right? And then the same thing happened even in, in, to a different degree and at different levels with Klopp at, at Liverpool. He came into that team was in shambles, but they entrusted him with that squad. But you're our guy. It's going to take multiple windows until we eventually get the players that fit your system. And Harry, you touched on it with their midfield currently. They don't have... Um, you know, these, a lot of these sleek midfielders, but they're all functional within the same system. And I think that's the key thing is that Klopp has built such a system for Liverpool to thrive and all these players have and have and know their roles within that system to thrive. Or Firmino, right? He's not going to be the goal scorer. He's not going to be this 25, 30 goal scoring uh, striker. He's a functional striker. He does a lot of things to help guys like Salah and Mane thrive. Right. But when if we're getting back to what Mourinho's thing, and I know we touched on, you know, has he adapted or not? I think it's really difficult to say. And, you know, you mentioned, Harry, that, you know, it's really unfair to kind of critique him um, throughout this stretch. Right. Because you know, there's a lot of 
good functional key pieces in place at, at Tottenham. I think they're not a team that's dead in, and dead in the water and they're going to finish, you know, mid table for the next two, three years. No, they're a team that most people would, uh, would be clear in saying that their cycle ended, right? They, they, most people thought Pochettino probably should have left and there's all, you know, it's all, you know, water cooler stuff and Monday morning quarterback at the end of the day. Right. But when you look at the players they've gotten, Don Bele, for instance, who all these teams wanted, and maybe they haven't been able to get the best out of him. Well, is that down to the player being a flop or the player not being um, up to par or as good? No, that could be maybe the system. Now that can maybe be down to Pochettino not being able to utilize him the right way. And maybe the same thing for Marino. But I, I look at Mourinho's kind of uh, his, his, his history as a coach and you look at you know, his Porto successes, right? But, and then you look at Real Madrid, you look at Chelsea, you look at all these clubs and you can, you can, quit, you can clearly see and clearly define that, you know, that's, is that more down to him not being able to adapt or is that just more the game kind of passing certain people by and everything kind of being magnified and, and observed differently? right, because of transfers and what players are able to get, so on and so forth. And you look at Porto, their success in the Champions League years and years ago when he was there, you know, can he, is he a manager able to do that now? Probably not. But how many managers can do that? There are very few teams that can do what Ajax did. Mm. What other, some of these other clubs have did Monaco, for instance, get a lot of kids, get a system that works, get the best out of them and make a deep run. And so it's very far and few in between a lot of those successes. And I think with Mourinho, look, I, 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 as, as a football fan, I also like to be entertained. I like to see good results. I like to see all these things. And for me, Mourinho's one of the biggest villains, one of the biggest heels football has ever seen. So for me to watch him, I like him in that regard too. Um, and I think he's kind of a misunderstood figure in football. I think a lot of people kind of hate him. He's very divisive and whatever the case may be. But, you know, I just think that it's, there's, there's a very – select few managers who I would say be able to step into a team and immediately revamp it, immediately carry out what's in their mind and put it on the field and put it in motion. And I think that's comes with the fact that in 2020, everything's looked at much more closely. Everything's more detailed. Everything's more magnified. There's a lot more information. The analytics, I know we touched on that in the Liverpool episode with Maxi, that the analytics you know, piece in modern football today mm. It just makes it more competitive. It just makes it much more difficult to have success. Which again, it's 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 it has that competitive edge, that competitive element. If you're able to 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 get the most out of that side, but you know, it's there's a lot of moving parts. And I think at the end of the day, with Mourinho and, and his Tottenham tenure so far, I think it's yeah, you have to be fair in, in assessing him. And I think ultimately, there's going to be a lot of people that don't because they say, well, he's at a big Premier League club. He's got you know X, Y, and Z in his team, and he's expected to produce. And it's the expectations that ultimately may be very difficult to, to obtain for him. And I think ultimately, I think they got to give him that, that, that chance to have his Tottenham version, right? Because he joined midseason, right? So your team got player, a coach joins midseason and you're expecting him to kind of pick up the pieces to a fumbling situation and hit the ground running. It's, it's not very easy like that. And most coaches um, can't obtain that at the same time. You know, you look at, how fans and you, you know, pet, you touched on, and this is my, my long, my, my, my rant here. I'm on my soapbox here, but just stay with me on this. You know, <laughs> how everyone wants to be entertained, right? They want the sexy football, that they want the results. They, they want everything, right? You look at what happened with, with um, uh, Allegri at Juve. Juventus fans criticize him. We need a new coach. He's the, what is he doing? He's too defensive. His tactics in the champions league, yada, 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 yada. 
okay, well, now you get the, the sexy, more aesthetically pleasing brand of football that you expected with Maurizio Sarri, and he's still having issues in year one. Mm. So you almost got to pick and choose. It's a case-by-case thing, and it's, it's not something as simple as what people think in, in FIFA, right? You're getting an 85 <laughs> overall player, you're putting him in the system, and he's going to be an 85. Like, it's, it's not like that. And I think that's what fans are, are, are having a big time uh, grasping. But also, they, again, they just troll, and you, know, you got to kind of weed them out when you're reading and trying to uh, analyze people's perceptions of, of football as it is. But it's also very difficult because, sorry, it's also very difficult because, you know, when you're saying earlier that very few managers can come in and put their ideas across straight away and it is very difficult, but no manager can really do that without the players, that the tools that he needs because what style of football was Mourinho supposed to have developed so far at Tottenham because are they going to be a passing out the back team? Well, their goalkeeper Hugo Lloris isn't very good at passing out from the back. Their defenders mm. aren't the best at it. They're not the most mobile of defenders at the moment. You know, Vertonghen was very good, but he's getting older. Alderweireld's got a fantastic long-range pass, but he's not very mobile, um, you know, and, and smooth bringing the ball out from the back. David Sanchez is the same. So, who are you going to give the ball to? Who's passing out from the back? Okay, so then you're going longer. But then who are you going long to? Because all of a sudden, you don't have the target man anymore. Harry Kane's been injured. Um, so it's very difficult. What kind of style was he supposed to have developed at Tottenham? Because the squad is so unbalanced and it's been dealt with so many different injuries. It, it's so difficult to put your ideas across. And it took, it took Klopp a while to become the absolute gargantuan force that Liverpool have become. With, and he didn't do it without his, his additions that he needed. You know, the, the square pegs, square holes. Um, you know, with Van Dijk and Alisson. He put the things in place, but he needed the additions to, to make it work. And it is incredibly difficult as a manager to put your ideas across because I just think there are so many tangibles outside of, you know, just what you see on TV that people can often ignore. You know, the mental state of players, the, the fatigue, do they take to certain ideas? Do they take to, are they able to do the, the things you're asking for? And I think it's been a very, very, I think criticism of Mourinho so far has been very, very harsh. Yeah, I think for me, uh, where I think it might not have been so harsh is uh, probably the the kind of treatment of Dombele. Although I, yeah. I don't, I don't think he's he's a saint either. I think the kind of uh, <laughs> the media antics when uh, Harry Kane got injured and, and screaming that he doesn't have a striker. I mean, it it was the same kind of situation, I suppose, for Pochettino when they were in the Champions League semi final when uh, Luke Smora became their kind of spearhead and instead of. I guess, kind of uh, motivating and instilling uh, responsibility in those players. I think Mourinho has probably done the opposite. Um, and then, I don't know, I, I think we mentioned Klopp. I think we mentioned uh, Arteta as well. From the very first, I watched the, the first game that Klopp managed Liverpool. And I watched, obviously, as an Arsenal fan, the first game that uh, Arteta managed Arsenal win. And in both those games, it was so obvious in the the kind of what they were trying to do and obviously as you mentioned harry they were kind of philosophical managers but that that for me is why it was quite strange to see tottenham appoint someone like uh Mourinho. and yeah my last question to you on this before we move on to i think talk about some some young players and what the transfer window is going to look like this this uh this off season how, how long term do you think this appointment is and was there anyone that you you know, hoped a Tottenham could attract instead of Mourinho? Um, I don't think there really is a long-term appointment nowadays, to be honest. It's, mm-hmm. You know, Pochettino was supposed to be the long-term one and we all saw how that ended. Um, 
to, to be a long-term manager, you need certain things. You need to constantly refresh the coaching staff, as Ferguson used to do. And you constantly need to refresh the, the team, as Ferguson used to do. You know, that's why Ferguson was, was at Man United and successful for so long, because they were constantly adapting to the times. And, you know, there's, there's not really, it's not really been put in place at Tottenham for that to happen. You know, Pochettino wasn't really given the resources to do that. The setup wasn't really put in place. And, and it all stayed the same for far too long and it became stale. So I don't think any manager at Tottenham, if you look at, you know, history, is, is in it for the long, long haul. Um, because it isn't being put in place. It's not like a club where you're Barcelona in and the ethos is already in place no matter what. And each manager that's appointed and each player that's signed just adheres to that ethos, um, which it looks like they're probably trying to do at Man City, maybe. Who knows? And, and maybe Klopp and Liverpool. But it's incredible, unless you are that kind of club. And to be fair, there's probably only those Barcelona and maybe Ajax. You know, there's only really those two kinds of clubs. I can't think of many more in the world where where the philosophy is the philosophy mm, and it doesn't mm. matter who is in charge. So in terms of long haul, there's not really many clubs or managers out there nowadays that are long haul. Um, do I think Mourinho will be there in four years' time? No, but I would say the same for any manager. And the situation that Tottenham are in, I was very happy with Mourinho because I do think he's a world-class manager and a world-class coach and he was available and you can look starry-eyed at the, at the modern-day managers. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Marco Rose and and Renny Maric, his assistant at Borussia Mönchengladbach, and followed their career. I think they're fantastic. Um, you know, Nagelsmann is doing fantastic as well. You know, young, innovative, exciting coaches. And, you know, I know a lot of Spurs fans would have liked one of them. But, you know, it's not as simple as well, we want them. Let's get them. They weren't available. They, mm. Some of them have just recently joined their teams. And who was available was a, an experienced, world-class coach, manager with a proven track record. And I was very, very happy with his appointment. I think he's a fantastic manager. And I think that as long as he's backed in some way, I'm not saying that he has to be given, uh, you know, a, a blank checkbook, but, you know, fitting the right players into the right holes, you know, a right back that fits the team. Doesn't have to be an amazingly expensive one, but, you know, the right players in the right areas. And I think he can do a very, very good job. I really do believe that. Fair enough, fair enough. I mean, well, uh, I, I don't think we're disagreeing on there. Maybe just slightly different points of views, as always. That's mm. what makes uh, football interesting. Going to talk a little bit about young players, I guess, around the world and also maybe some of the, the most interesting ones you've, you've worked with yourself, Harry, and also the, the most exciting ones you're seeing in the, in the Premier League and in, at Tottenham, which obviously you have strong ties to. Why don't you go into uh, that a little bit for us? Yes, I know. I am very lucky to be working with these players, um, young players, young professionals and academy players, Across the UK, Europe, and the, and the world, even um, you know, I have a very good relationship thanks to Richard with Palmeiras, the, the best academy in Brazil, a phenomenal setup, uh, which I can talk about a bit later. But um, you know, the work we do with these plays is is field work, so you know, ball work and on the pitch, and also analysis. So certain plays that you know we go and watch their games and provide analysis reports on them and analysis and of their sessions, and you know, give them programs to work on. We also have a strength and conditioning coach, a trainer, sorry, who who works with our players. So, you know, we do provide, we do try to provide our players with everything they could possibly need. And, um, you know, there has been some fantastic talents that, or there are, sorry, some fantastic talents that we're working with that are going to make a breakthrough. You know, people like Jaden Braff from Manchester City we've done mm. work with. Um, oh, there's, there's too many to name. Charlotte Shortire at Man United. We've 
previously had experience with and we'll be doing coaching with soon. Um, we haven't actually coached him yet or provided analysis, but that will happen after <laughs> this pandemic ends. But we have had dealings with Shola before, um, you know, specifically playing against our independent academy for Man United a few years ago. And just, you know, they, they, some really exciting talent that we're lucky to be working with. Awesome, awesome. And uh, I mean, I wanted to dig into Troy Parrott a little bit. Uh, but before we do that, I think it'd be, it'd be apt to talk about what your uh, feelings are in terms of how transfers are going to work. Because there's been a lot of speculation about, uh, you know, whether or not there'll be a lot of player swaps, uh, whether or not there'll be any transfers at all. We're already seeing someone like Alex Tenez probably going to PSG for, uh, you know, 20, 25 million euros, which is under his 40 million buyout clause, which, I mean, could be an indicator of, uh, you know, a market which might not be as expensive as it was before. What's your general take on it, Harry? And uh, do you think there will be that many player swaps? I mean, you've got probably connections to, to agents and know that, that side of the game quite well. Yeah. That's really hard to do, isn't it? Oh, player swaps, are oh, they? They're, they're, it's so difficult to do a player swap. So many things have to fall in place. It's not like, I mean, it's even difficult for football managers have to do a player swap, let alone, let alone <laughs> in real life. So, um, no, it is incredibly difficult. How will it affect the market? It's, it's going to affect it hugely. It is going to affect it hugely. Um, I, I don't really want to pick a positive out of this time because obviously it's a horrible pandemic that we're all in, but you could maybe argue that football might be better off afterwards in terms of transfers and because it was just too easy for, for clubs to just swallow up talents and, and you know, it was too easy to just disregard certain players. And now what you're going to see is clubs are going to really have to be smarter they're not just going to be able to throw money at a situation. They're going to have to really work with the players they have. And that could be better for football overall. But, you know, I don't really want to pick a positive out of this, out of this horrible time. But, you know, that, that could be something that happens. Um, it's definitely going to affect the market. You know, prices will go down. It, it can't really not. Um, you could maybe see a situation which would be pretty devastating for most teams where the absolute, you know, mammoth teams in terms of financial financial possibilities like Manchester City they could really uh, clean up but you know we'll see how bad it affects them but um, you know there will certainly be less transfers clubs and managers are going to have to work with what they've got a lot more and that could change football for the better Yeah I, I think that's going to be gone sorry Matt on that on that topic, um, I, I was reading something we talked about in previous episodes, and I know he's one of the biggest names being kind of circulated around the transfer uh, portal here. Uh, Sandro Tonali, um, there's there's domestic interest, obviously, in Italy with the top clubs, but also there's kind of a, a, a rumor going around about Barcelona being able to lodge a 60 million bid, plus have the access to maybe, um, you know, I think Brescia having like an access to one or two academy players from Barcelona. Do you feel that given the circumstances of the market, the economy and all that stuff and everything kind of going around in Europe and world football, that there may be those cases where, yes, there's going to be a lot of players that still move, the younger players that you know, maybe cheaper prices, but do you find that maybe there's going to be some younger players and clubs specifically that say, hey, I don't want to just sell my top prospect for, mm-hmm. for 50 cents on a dollar because of the circumstances, mm-hmm. I'm going to try and keep them. Because, uh, you know, a, a player like Tonali, for instance, who comes along maybe once in every 15, 20 years for a team like Russia or 50 years for a team like Russia, for them to take a haircut on him just to kind of point him off to a, a top club, 
I don't think that's probably the best case. Of course, you can't hold it up against a player's will. But, you know, getting back to my main question here is, do you find that there's going to be some youth players that were maybe destined to make a big move in the summer before this hit are now going to be kind of held against making those moves in hopes that their value maybe increases uh, down the line? Yeah, maybe. I think clubs are going to have to be more innovative with how they do transfers. So, you know, those past exchanges that you are talking about earlier, they could be an interesting way of doing things. Um, I think that I think that will be a, a situation because, you know, where clubs can't sign players now as much and it's not as easy to replace players that if you have got a few gems that are coming through, then the world may be looking out to get first-team football. Clubs might be more reluctant to, to get rid of them for the reasons you said. So I can definitely see that happening. Um, tra- transfers, you know, that were going to happen across the board will now definitely, you know, there's going to be a huge reduction in transfers no matter what. Um, that will be for, you know, the experienced senior pros as well as probably the academy players. But then you could also see, you know, a lot more academy players move in other aspects. Um, clubs in Holland, for example, the, a, lot of, a lot of the players in Holland are actually young players. They're not on contracts because clubs can't afford to pay them. So you could actually see, you know, English clubs looking towards those markets a lot more because obviously they need the talents and they can't afford to pay out as much as they could do before. So if they can find the gems that, you know, you get for a massively reduced fee, a, a small comp- training compensation fee because they're not on a contract, then mm. you could see a lot more of that happening. Um, so I think clubs are going to have to be more innovative. They're going to have to be smarter, and it will definitely change football. Um, but in terms of the, the the young players that maybe were going to go for big money, then I think that you're going to see maybe not as many of those transfers, definitely. Hmm. I think it's, yeah, it's it's going to be crippling to businesses in general. And yeah. football clubs are businesses. People need to remember that. They're not immune yeah. to this. Um, and it's it's just one of those things, right? It's it's going to be it's going to be tough for clubs that don't have big cash reserves to make moves. And, uh, you know, if clubs do want to make moves and they take loans on, those loans might be, you know, harder to, to pay back, etc. It just all gets so complicated. Uh, yeah, and if you're, if you're sorry, if you no, are no, a, you say, you know, Players, young players, don't re, don't, sorry, young players rarely transfer from big club to big club for mm. a sizable man. It doesn't really happen. Usually, you might have a, play, a young player at a big club that's not getting the game time. So, a club in the you know in the bracket underneath might sign them. But if you're one of those clubs in the brackets underneath, and if we're talking about you know, there's been a few transfers in recent years to, to clubs in Germany, English players. So, if you look at maybe clubs like Hamburg and and Schalke and those kind of clubs. Yeah. before they might make those transfers. But are they really going to be spending a few... I mean, recently, you know, in recent years, Schalke, that's a good example, they bought Rabi Matondo from Manchester City mm. for, I think, maybe £10 million. Now, with the current climate, is a club like Schalke... I mean, I'm, not, I'm just using them as an example. I don't know Schalke's finances, but is a club in that... You They're know, apparently quite bad, by the way. Right, OK, there you go. So, is a club in the bracket of Schalke, are they really going to be spending millions on a young player? Probably not. So you will see a, probably a lot more of these young players that are at big clubs having to stay put. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the only player that I can think of that's gone from kind of big club to big club as a, a relative youngster was Daniel Sturridge when he bounced around from you know City to Chelsea to Liverpool. That's literally the only player I can think of. But yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting conversation. It's going to be... I, 
I mean, you mentioned there is not really a positive to this pandemic, but it's going to be fascinating to, to see how clubs kind of maneuver in these markets. But I, yeah. I think we, we've been talking for ages and, and Harry, we want to, we want to set the floor for you to, to kind of profile a, a player of your choice. And I think we talked about Troy Har- uh, Parrott earlier, Jaden Bruff, you know, choice is yours really on who you want to kind of talk about. Um, I'll probably go with Jaden Bruff. I haven't worked with Troy yet so far. Um, but, you know, Jaden Bruff is a, um, for those who don't know, he is a Man City and Netherlands Youth International. He is 17 years old. I actually believe he was going to make his debut for Man City this season before, the, before obviously, this happened um, because the league was obviously going to Liverpool. Jaden Braff is one of the top talents in Europe and, um, you know, Man City, he's not a player that Man City would want to lose. So they were probably going to give him minutes this season to prove to him we can give you a, a part play into the first team. So I think he would have made his debut this year, um, this season. Whether obviously the season continues and he and he makes his debut is you know who knows, but um, he's a he's one of those players that can win a game on its own. You know he can have a performance where he actually maybe gets a you know he can have a performance where he does nothing correctly, and all of a sudden he comes up with a goal where he's driven with the ball from the halfway line to the edge of the box and lashes into the top corner. He's one of those players that can just win a game off the drop of a hat. And uh, we went to myself and Richard went to go watch him. Um, for Holland under 18s, I believe it was. They played Belgium under 18s this season. And Jaden was actually on the bench in the first half. And um, Belgium done Holland twice on the counter-attack. And I believe it was 2-1 to Belgium at halftime. And Braff uh, came on in the second half. And it was only a friendly. But, um, you know, the, the game was going in a similar kind of vein. Holland were trying to keep the ball in the final third. And they weren't really, there was no real penetration. And Belgium hit them on the counter. And looking to hit them on the counter again. And then all of a sudden, Braff just gets the ball twice and absolutely lashes two screamers into the top corner from like 25, 30 yards, and they win the game 3 2. And he's just one of those plays as the just incredibly special talent and uh, mixed with pace and power, as well as that aura that, you know, only a few select players have that, 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 that confidence of, I'm here, I know how good I am, I'm going to make it and give me the ball. And he has that and he produces. and you know, he does have things to work on in his all-round game, which we've, you know, told him a few times, you know, in terms of being able to keep the ball, certain decision-making, you know, receiving the ball with an open body, etc. But he is one of those players that give him the ball. He prefers to receive it deeper when he has space because he can just then get up ahead of steam and just drive, 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 cut in and lash it into the, into the corner. But he's becoming much better in his all-round game, to be fair to him. He's really worked on that. Um, he's having, a, he's, you know, working on his variety as well because he would often score the same kind of goal or very similar kind of goal and the same kind of assist. But he's working on getting into the box more. He's working on his combination play. And he's a special talent that we've worked with and we'll uh, no doubt be doing more work with in the future. So no, he's a very exciting talent that we're lucky to be working with. Interesting stuff, Harry. Um, and I'm sure we can go on for days. I know me and Pat, are, uh, we were talking about this. We were very excited to have you on and kind of see where, where this went. And it's definitely been a much different experience from our previous episodes, but we're, we're definitely uh, glad to have you on and provide your coaching insight and perspective. Uh, before we wrap up, uh, Harry, we've got one question from um, one of our uh, most loyal listeners. His name is Roberto Grosso. He's a, a goalkeeping coach. He's done some great things um, in Montreal, Canada. So, um, you know, definitely... Uh, you know, go, go check out what he's doing uh, at rgrosso84. His question was, what advice would um, you give to someone who wants to dig deeper into tactical, statistical, video uh, analysis, and what pitfalls should they watch for to avoid consuming the wrong or irrelevant information? 
So I guess it's like a two-part question, I guess, if you want to attack it, the first part, and then maybe the second, and go from there. Wow, that is a good question. That is a, that is a very difficult one to answer. Um, I think it's very difficult because there are so many different platforms out there and so many different types of graphs you can look at. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to highlight the, the, the best ones. Um, in terms of the warning signs of what I would look out for, it's, it's, for me, I think it's incredibly difficult to completely judge a player just based on analysis and just based on graphs and numbers because there are so many outlying factors, you know, and there's so many tangibles that come into play when analysing a, a footballer. And I think there's a more of a situation now where, play, where people are analysing footballers just based on really detailed analysis in terms of their, their stats and their figures. Um, for me, I think, you know, yes, data is incredibly important and it's, it's a fantastic addition to the game. But if I'm analysing a player, I will never, ever just analyse the data. I will always use the eye test as well because let's say, for example, you have a player that gets 15 assists in a season. Now, if you just look to the graph and said, well, 15 assists and he got the assists from these kind of areas, okay, well, that's the sign of a really creative player. But when you look at the eye test, well, actually, you know, were most of those assists quite normal basic passes that was given it to a superstar player because let's say you're a left central midfielder or you're, you're a central midfielder that predominantly plays on the left and you've got Kylian Mbappe as your forward um, and, you know, you're, you're constantly just giving him the ball and staying near him. You know, does that fluctuate your assist numbers, just for an example? Um, so I would always recommend that, yes, use data. There are good platforms out there that provide um, good analysis and good data. Um, too many to name, to be honest. Um, but I would always say, caveat that with, if you are analysing a player, also maybe look at the eye test and you know, make sure the data backs up what you see. It's funny, actually, you know, Liverpool have become the, the most successful club in the world at the moment, and they've used a lot of data. It's been quite well reported. And that's kind of uh, meant that loads of people you know, individuals have tried to take, um, you know, to social media, become analysts, etc. However, like data only matters as much as the context that context that it is set within. And I think you've done a really good uh, job of displaying it there. You know, a, a lot of people are, are becoming skilled in, in using uh, expected goals, expected assists in, in kind of working out when a player is going to break out kind of uh, from a performance standpoint. But a lot of the statistical analysis that's going around, some of it has so little context and I look at it and it, I don't cringe, but I'm just like, I, I kind of see where they're going, but that doesn't quite work and it doesn't quite transfer into the, to the real world, if that makes sense. Yeah, completely. And uh, if you look at expected goals, again, I'm not against data at all. I think data is a fantastic addition to the game. It's getting better and better. And, you know, clubs should definitely use data when signing players. You know, a transfer can be millions of pounds. You should definitely have as much information as possible. Um, so data is definitely useful. But if you want to, you know, if, if you just use data, let's look at the expected goals, for example. Let's say that, you know, you are a, a team that's creating a lot of chances and your expected goals is, is quite high. And, but you're not, you're not scoring and you're not, in, you're not in good form. And then people might caveat it with saying, well, you know, their expected goals is good. So, you know, it will, it will turn around soon. What if your striker is a really poor finisher? <laughs> you know, what if those expected goals are falling to players that aren't very good at finishing a football? So, you know, I think it's, context is everything, as you just said. 
I also think what's interesting too is, and it, it seems it's it's I guess there may be something or some sort of stat that you can kind of lean towards to get more information about this, but um, we're, I guess called the hockey assist, right? The pass before the pass that leads to the goal. And mm. I've always found this very interesting because it doesn't show up on a who scored stat sheet or, you know, wherever you're looking to get your basic, you know, you know, box score, your game stats for that given match day. You know, sometimes it's the real great long ball or the rate, the great pass that leads to the space for the winger or the attacking midfielder to exploit. And then he's just simply squaring a ball to the striker, the strikers burying it. And it's that, that, that playmaker, that guy before the, the assist guy, if you will, who's getting, wow, he's got another assist or he's getting, you know, 15, 20 assists a season. But it's the guy who's making the pass happen, who's seeing that space, who's picking out that pass and doing all those things to ultimately lead to the, the goal scoring opportunity. So, I, again, we, we always touch on it. You know, stats are great. I always say they're a great complementary tool to use. I use them when I'm writing, when I'm, you know, analyzing performances and so on and so forth. I definitely have them by my side, but I always try to just watch as many games as I possibly can, especially when, of course, you have that, that live um, opportunity to, to observe players in a live experience, which I always think is just more important. But, yeah, I just think we're going to start to see as we get into this, this, this current decade moving forward, the next 10 years, I think it's just only going to become deeper um, in the analytics department. And I think that's ultimately just going to you know, make the competitive edge. If you can master the analytics side of things that much more um, you know, influential. That reminded me actually, you know, when uh, I think Alexander Hleb notoriously at Arsenal didn't really have that great a goals or assist record. And I think Arsene Wenger was asked about it in, in one of his press conferences. And I think he responded with something like, he might not have a lot of goals this season. He might not have an assist, but I think he's got the most pre-assist this right. season in the league, which was <laughs> he obviously uh, very far ahead of his time as always, uh, even <laughs> when he wasn't doing as well in his latter years, Arsene Wenger. Uh, but I think we'll wrap it up there, Harry. We've taken up loads of your time this evening, and we don't want to don't want to you know bore listeners to death going on hours <laughs> and hours of content. Where can people find out more about you and your new podcast and all the, the great things that you're doing? Oh yeah, no. Um, so my Twitter is at hp underscore head coach, and the podcast is called uh, Coach's View. So people can check that out on Spotify and Podfollow, etc. So um, no, appreciate that. I've had a great time. Thank you for having me on. Amazing. Uh, Matt, where can people find out more about you as uh, usual? At Matt underscore Santangelo on Twitter. Um, like I've been saying the previous episodes, I got my Medium account back up and running. So you'll see some different content, some fun stuff throughout this entire quarantine until we get back to football matters. But um, yeah, something's coming up with Skydive Football. If you guys haven't checked out what they're doing with the U23 model, um, make sure you guys you know, support them by a digital copy or a physical copy of the magazines that are coming out. I'll be featured in the next one that's coming out. Can't give any hints on who I'm going to be covering, but of course, follow me on Twitter for updates on that. Amazing. And you can find me at Pet Berisha on Twitter at P-E-T-B-E-R-I-S-H-A. And you can find us on at State of Play Pod. Uh, and then if you type in State of Play uh, podcast on any of your favorite podcast apps, please review us, give us a five-star review, subscribe and all that great stuff. And look out for uh, a YouTube channel and an and Instagram over the coming uh, seven or eight weeks. We've got some exciting things in store. Thanks everyone for listening and have a great day.